I'm a card-carrying Bayesian at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. Just stood next to Big Poppy be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. Welcome to the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. Your crash course of the major themes from our two-hour program, Wharton Moneyball, which you can hear live on Wednesdays, 8 a.m. Eastern Time until 10 a.m. Eastern Time and replayed throughout the week. I'm your host, Professor Adi Weiner, professor in the Department of Statistics at the Wharton School of Business of the University of Pennsylvania. I'm one of the co-hosts and collaborators for our weekly show, Wharton Moneyball. And our program today is going to break down the major themes and highlights from our two-hour show. And we didn't have any guests, but we had four professors from the Wharton School discussing, arguing the week's events in sports. And, of course, they included Cade Massey, our host this past week, um, Eric Bradlow, and, of course, Shane Jensen and myself. And we talked about all the major sports and the events on the previous week from the college football championship to baseball to hockey to professional football in the NFL. Let's go to our first clip, which is the discussion of the championship game in college football. Why would you not pooch kick the ball, which you have been doing successfully every time, put them down at their own 30-yard line well, where a Hail Mary is not possible? Here's the, here's the why. You know the why. Run back. Yeah, you know what's I'm in the saying. equation. It's like the probability of advancing it is no, significantly but I'm saying, higher. Right, so what I'm trying, this is why we're in Wharton Moneyball, mm. I'm trying to weigh... Which, let's assume they hadn't gotten the onside kick for a second, although you have to factor mm-hmm. that in too. Those are only successful about 5% of the time. Why not weigh Alabama at the Clemson 45 they must have. versus the, you think so? I'm not yeah. sure about that. Well, I mean, you can look. Must I, have I mean, is too strong a word, but of course. Well, you you certainly the could work out. There's a trade off. I would rather pooch kick the ball to the 30-yard line and have, again. Okay. Okay. Do I, you I, see I, more Hail Marys? Or do you see more kickoff returns for touchdowns? I see a lot less frequency of one than the well, other. Well, right, but maybe I don't, that, see, maybe I don't that's... observe them enough. Okay, I don't observe so enough I, Hail Marys. I, 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 see, here's the, I think you're missing the probability of recovering the onside kick. No, I was adding that in. That happened, I just said it happens less than 10% of the time. So I'm no, pu- no, not when it's a surprise like this. That's what you don't know. That's a big difference on the onside kicks. Almost, almost all onside kicks you see are... Perfectly anticipated. By the way, let me just say, by the way, you're also... Say, all right, so that's possible. Yeah. You have to factor that in. That's why we're talking about it. Another possibility is, let's just say Clemson guy had gotten the onside kick. Well, no, there's only one second left. So the Alabama guy really had to just grab the ball with his knee already on the ground, so no time would run off it. Yeah. I just thought it was... i just saying the probability doesn't seem obvious to me that onside <laughs> kicking there... And I don't know. I'm sure they don't have a kicker that can kick a 60-yard field goal. All I'm commenting on is it just seemed... A poo- they had sixty-yard six- field goal wouldn't have done it, didn't? Oh no, no, they were, they, it was only down by three at that yeah. point. No, they were four. It was oh, four. It was four yeah, down. You're yeah. right. So you're right. So it would have had to have been a hail mary. No I just felt what. a hail mary See, I, would I have had. You, I grant you, not obvious, but it's not at all obvious the other way either. Well, there was an interesting discussion. Let's put this into context a little bit. So what we are talking about is the very end of the game. Clemson had a lead. Alabama was receiving for the kickoff. And what Clemson decided to do was do an onside kick, which is a tremendous surprise and very important, as Cade pointed out. What Eric was 
recommending and was surprised they didn't do was a pooch kick. Now, pooch kick meaning a very high, um, deep kick, which would give the ball to Alabama very deep in their own territory, making it very unlikely for them to run back the ball, which is a very key potential problem for Clemson, for Alabama running back with the ball and scoring. So a pooch kick is very hard to run back because so many of your defenders descend on the receiver, and it also puts them kind of deep in their own territory. So it's a very conservative thing to do, which would leave the ball deep in Alabama's territory with no possibility of a run back and almost no time left on the clock to score a field goal. And that what, what, Shane, what Shane was was discussing at the end was maybe they have the possibility of, of getting a 60-yard field goal, giving them one play to get decently far and then a field goal. Um, what Clemson did do was an onside kick, which was totally unexpected, um, which which is interesting because the possibility of a run back is is almost zero with that as well. Um, and But that puts them kind of in midfield if they do recover it, if Alabama covers it, which makes it even more possible for them to score a touchdown. And really what the, the focus of the conversation was about was trying to understand whether this all these different alternatives, which one was really uh, the, the more sensible thing. And, and Eric was, was, I think, deriding Clemson's decision, although, of course, it worked out. Um, but but I think Cade was, was right on, which was they did factor in the probability of recovering the ball, which Clemson actually did do, which is very low when an onside kick is expected. But it turns out it's actually quite high when it's unexpected. And that's what actually uh, took place. So this is a, a, a section of, of, of analytics, what we call play analytics, which is really big in football, where you really look at the probabilities of different outcomes and, and the resulting field position and win probabilities that, that, that you, you encounter after various different play um, um, combinations. And I think football is working hard as a, as a community to, to um incorporate what statisticians have discovered in these new directions. And I think this might have been an analytics-based maneuver. So it's a really interesting conversation. Our next clip brings us back to baseball and a a discussion on Hall of Fame voting. My understanding of the trajectories of Hall of Fame voting is that guys typically increase over time. In other words... Mm -hmm. People look at the trajectory of like the reason I I said Bagwell, which I was off by one. I don't think there's ever been somebody in the history of the Hall of Fame that has gotten over seventy percent in a previous year. You only need seventy five percent to get in. Over seventy percent who has not gotten into the Hall of Fame. That's right. Unless there there have been, I do do believe that there have been plenty of people that have gone up into like the fifty percent range and not gotten in. Many, 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 but not in the seventy. And Bagwell was at seventy one percent last year. Seventy one point six. He was yeah, seventy one point six last year, yeah. and then I mean, in, in some sense, that's like the immortal lock that yeah. you're getting into the Hall of Fame. All right, well, Eric again is telling us something about the Hall of Fame projections. That the point being is that you need seventy five percent of the ballots in order to be elected into the Hall of Fame. Um, Bagwell had about seventy one percent last year, and Eric's point is once you hit seventy one percent, if it's not your final year, your your chances of making it at least historically have been one hundred percent. So everyone who's made it to seventy percent in any year other than their final year will make it into the Hall of Fame, and therefore Bagwell's at this point a statistical forecast of nearly 100% to make it. I actually looked at the numbers. We'll talk about it in our program this week. Bagwell is around 89% of the publicized ballots at this point. There's still about 150 ballots unpublicized, and those will get counted and uh, announced, I think, in in a few days. And Bagwell looks to be a pretty clear lock. So we're going to see an election of Jeff Bagwell into the Hall of Fame. And that's um, not necessarily because of what uh, Eric had to say about the 70% last year, but based on 
the current ballots that have come in. And we're going to talk about it on our show this week. So listen to our show and listen to next week's post-game podcast wrap-up. And we'll talk about uh, the Hall of Fame after it's happened. I can I can make this projection here, though, on our on our post-game podcast from before the, the ballots. I'm projecting, personally, uh, Professor Adi Weiner's forecast. Bagwell will be in. Reigns will be in. I will also predict Hoffman to make it, and that's a a, uh, a prediction that is not forecasted by the other pundits because he's well under 75 right now. I'm predict- predicting that Pudge will not make it, although it's very close. And that's actually another contrarian forecast because Reigns is polling, uh, not Reigns, uh, um, Pudge Rodriguez is polling around 80%, which means he's comfortably over the threshold. So I'm actually projecting he's going to fall back. Um, who, who else is not going to make it? Guerrero is not going to make it, even though he's polling right around 75% right now. So we'll stay tuned and see whether those projections actually um, come into fruition. Our next clip is, again, about the Hall of Fame voting. Well, mm. here's the question. Think, though. We've only seen two thirds of, I mean, of the public ballot. I hope so you're right. Here's another question: Are the two thirds a good forecast of no. the total? No, and and that's the probably not because we don't think they're random. But that's the data that I don't have historically, which I'm going to probably would love. I'd love like you don't you don't have you don't do. have previous years as the full as, time series as a, as a time series, right? Yeah, yeah. So gotcha. so let me just say the analysis I saw, not yours. The analysis I saw looked at the kind of randomness, if you'd like, of the, let's call it two-thirds ballots versus the full ballots, okay? And what's interesting is that, I mean, this is... They're pretty close. They're pretty close. They are. They're down by about 5%. Which is not a huge amount, but it's enough for us to say that 62% or whatever the number is at the partial is not going to get you to 75. Because it only goes down. And by the way, this is an interesting mathematics, Adi. Maybe you could remind our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball about this. Let's suppose you did this analysis last year. I think it was with the Golden State Warriors. Let's imagine you know that you have two-thirds at 60-something percent. The other one-third to get you to 75% would have to be like at 90%. So it's not one-third at 75% because that's not going to – the weighted average of that is not going to get you there. So you would need an extraordinarily biased sample. Oh, yeah. So you just you're never going to get to seventy five percent if you have two thirds. I mean, just the data suggests you'll never get there. So it looks like so. My forecast at this point is Bagwell and Reigns are going to make it. Guerrero is going to miss it, and Ivan Rodriguez is going to barely make it. That's I. But I. Oh, I, you I think Punch well, is going to make it as yes, a first ballot? As a first ballot. Wow, he's that good. Uh, he deserves it as a first ballot. Uh, uh, how much does defense really matter? And a catcher. He's yeah, a, that's how yeah, that's I mean, yeah, mumble. That's Actually, right. the yeah. thing that uh, uh, sure. Kate here has put up on the screen. The thing is exactly what I was saying was there's a row in this spreadsheet called percent needed on remaining ballots. So that's exactly what I was referring yeah. to. What fraction of the remaining ballots would you? And then you could compare that to the fraction you've gotten on the existing ballots and say it's just not happening. Right. Hey, hey, you had my forecast last week, but that analysis was actually not using the data that I just described would be great to get. I have gotten it. So the data that we talked about last week would be terrific to be able to obtain, which is the time series of when the actual ballots came in. And it turns out that data is available, and I looked at it. So when I made the forecast that Pudge is going to make it, I was assuming that there'd be a drop just when the new ballots uh, come in. I mean, the anonymous ballots come in. It turns out there's a drop as the public ballots also come in. So last week they were polling. He was polling around 80. He's now dropped to about 78. And that's why I predict him actually to not make it. So my, 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 my forecast 
new revised forecast is that Pudge will just barely miss, even though last week, as you just heard me announce, that I forecasted that Pudge would just barely make. And I also point to another revision. When I didn't have the time series data, I predicted that Hoffman would not make it. I didn't even mention him. It said he's just not going to make it. I'm actually predicting that he will make it. And that's because there's a special class of Hall of Fame candidate that doesn't go down, as we refer to. This is a Hall of Fame candidate that goes up, and that is closer. And for a full discussion of this, we're going to wait till next week's show, uh, and then we'll revisit this whole topic in our next Moneyball postgame podcast. Let's go to our next clip on expected point differential in NBA basketball. If Cleveland Golden State were essentially a push last year, and now Golden State has Durant, yeah, what would that do to the odds? Well, in, I can in, tell you what it's head done. Head. It's not like it's Cleveland's making, it's made them way more either, than two thirds, like three quarters. Well, what, you know, what do you think it should do to the odds? Well, the great thing about basketball, and you, you know, Shane, I think of all of us, you study this more than anybody, which is there is only one basketball. Yeah. So let's remember, Golden State has two great had two great shooters. I'm ignoring Draymond Green, by the way, who's a great three-point shooter. Had two great shooters in Thompson and Curry. So you've added a third great shooter. But there's still only one basketball. So of the, let's say, 80 or 90 shots they take, how many of them, because of Durant, Mm -hmm. are better shots than they would have gotten with just Green Curry and Thompson. But I think, Let's say right, you great. even argue ten more shots. Yeah. Let's say no, no. Wait, let me just finish. Let's say you say there's ten shots that would have made a difference, and let's even say in basketball, it's a five percent increase, which, as you know, is a huge amount in basketball, going from let's say a forty to forty-two percent make to yeah. forty-five to forty-seven. The expected number of point differential is actually not that big. On it's the other true, hand, but at the same time, they've added. You know, by adding that amazing player, they've added depth of their greatness, right? So one of these players goes down to injury, and their season is not like much you more know, robust. I agree. They're much more robust injuries. So reduces variance. This is something that I think is potentially at play when I watch the finals last year, the problem for the, for the Golden State was LeBron. And he just seemed to be in the face of the best players whenever they, he needed to be. Now that they have one more, you can't multiply LeBron. You know, it just makes it harder for him to have an impact on defense. Okay, so tuning up for the NBA Finals, which we expect again to, to be against uh, Cleveland against uh, Golden State. And the real discussion was, what happens when you add, uh, you add Durant to Golden State? Are they really that much better? Does Cleveland have the possibility to even defend against them? And uh, Eric's point was there's only one basketball, only one person can, can have it, and adding a tremendous player like, like uh, Kevin Durant makes them better, but maybe not as much as he would have made another team better, and that Golden State's uh, advantage over Cleveland may not be so great. Uh, my final point, which I thought was a pretty good one, was that uh, so much uh, of Cleveland's success can be um, attributed to LeBron James, and not just on offense, but I think as much on defense. He seems to just be everywhere all over the court, and that's because um, not everyone is tremendous or, ter- or terrific players, but now you add Kevin Durant to the mix, and uh, the opportunity that LeBron has to shut down the opposition is just that much more limited. So our final clip, again, discusses Cleveland Cavaliers and the championship. I still think that Cleveland should have better odds of winning the championship at this point because they do have such a so much of an easier path well, through the East. So I, I still am even even if they pairwise the Golden State is favored over Cleveland, um, Cleveland should have better odds of the championship because the, the path for Golden State is inarguably harder, right? I mean, San Antonio, Houston, 
The West is still a tougher conference to come out. Of. Absolutely. And by the way, OKC doesn't is not horrible. The Clippers aren't horrible. Utah Jazz did beat the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers. The mm-hmm. Utah Jazz have won like ten of their last eleven games. So all of a sudden, they've. Yeah. I'm not. I'm just saying. What I'm do we know s- about in-season basketball? That's the thing that I find so distressing about this 81-game season. Yeah, 82, yeah. 82. It's just so, what are you really seeing? I mean, I looked at, you had the, the power ranking numbers on defense for, for, Cavali- for the Cavaliers, and they were, they were zero. In other words, they think of them as an average defense. This really? Is, this is going to be really going to happen good, in, the, in the playoffs. Right. You're going to be an average. Yeah. Team. Come really, on, teams. Teams really do kind of it's like. Really don't, but that's but, right. Well, let me just say the other. But I'll tell you what we do know. Right now, even after losing last night, the Cavaliers have either a four or five game lead in the East. So they can. I hate to play it. They can play by the ebb yeah. and flow of the season. They're going to have home court in the East. They're not worried. Golden State has a one-game lead in the West. As a matter of fact, there's three teams in the West still. I think Houston's one of them, San Antonio, Golden State, that still have all less than 10 losses. If they go on a bad stretch and lose two or three games, let's say, they may slip to the three seed in the West. Now, all of a sudden, that bet on Golden State, if they're on the road in the possible 2-3 matchup and the road in the 1-3 or 1-2 matchup, all of a sudden, Golden State's not looking so lockish. Mm-hmm. Well, they're not going to gonna go let it go to, to that. They're going to they're gonna work... As it goes oh, to the no, end, but to make you brought sure. up a point. They're That's gonna my harder. point. They're going to have to work harder to guarantee themselves home court advantage, which will take and That's all. and it will take it. So as mm-hmm. they're working through the West, yep. Cleveland knows it can put on up an eighty percent throttle, and they're in the finals. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay, so the four of us were bringing out a bunch of uh, really interesting ideas about basketball. Shane started with a discussion of the, the path analysis. It looks like Cleveland has a much harder road to hoe in order to get to the finals. They've got to defeat much better teams, and Cleveland has to has to defeat. Um, on, on the other side, uh, uh, Cleveland really just has to stay ahead of Toronto, which really shouldn't be that hard for them. And and uh, and Golden State really has to work really hard. Um, and as a result, we're going to see a tired, exhausted Golden State. State, a fairly well-rested Cleveland, and then the point I made earlier was that that the in-season statistics are often a very poor projection of what's going to actually happen in the playoffs, which is uh, a theme that we've talked about. The basketball season is just too long. Um, it doesn't, uh, nothing happens in it that, does, that separates the team, and it just serves to exhaust everyone. And, it, and what really matters is the playoffs, and what we see is just different teams emerging from what we saw, thought they were based on the on the the regular season. Well, that concludes our edition of the Wharton Moneyball postgame podcast. It's been a nice show. Listen to us talk amongst ourselves without any other guests. Our next shows should have some guests, and I'd recommend that you come and listen to our full show, our Wharton Moneyball Live, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM's Business Radio Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. And until then, enjoy your sports and enjoy your statistics. <laughs>